happy 2021, everyone. This is Evelisa, stories of life and love, and I'm excited to continue our season of legacy, leadership, love, and life, and speaking from great, inspiring people, and my art clients, and just our little community of creative and visionary folks. Um, This is a lovely, lovely conversation I get to have with Regional Chief Roseanne Archibald. I hope you enjoy it. You get some really great insight into her commitment to elevating women, especially Indigenous women, and her own um, very eclectic (laughs) uh, creative process and creative journey. So I really hope you enjoy it, and thanks everyone. Welcome to Stories of Life and Love, the show where we get a snapshot into the personal experiences and wisdom of each of my incredible art clients. And I'm your host, Evelisa. I have the privilege of working with individuals and couples to listen to their hopes, dreams, visions, feelings, and philosophy. I take all of that information and I reflect it in a portrait or a dreamscape. And I've learned there's so much we can learn from listening to the insight of others. I believe your life is a complex and beautiful journey and is meant to be celebrated. And I'm excited to share with everyone each of your stories behind my paintings of life and love. This is a really, really wonderful and special episode. I'm excited for to share and listen to more of her story and her journey uh, in leadership. And I've also had the pleasure of working with her in the past, and that is Chief Roseanne Archibald. Hello, Chief. Hi. Hi, welcome. Thank you. So, you know, I had so much respect and feel very kindred towards your story and identity as a leader um, and as a creative, and I'm excited for us to delve a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. So, you know, your career has been quite unique and eclectic, involving community leadership going to film school, being an artist, and ultimately leading up to now as a regional chief in a quite a tumultuous climate too. You had such an emphasis on heart-centered leadership, first with a shift to uh, conservative government at the provincial level. There were a lot of organizational changes. And now with elections and pandemic and the social movements of our world, you're sort of nearing the end of your term. And I was wondering just to start off, you know, for our audience of entrepreneurs, leaders, and creatives, can you tell us a little bit about how you were able to navigate such a complex leadership trajectory in your career? And really, what is your basic strength that allowed you to grow uh, through all these places and in this way? Okay, I'll start with the trajectory. Um, Excuse me. I, you know, politics is, and leadership is the family business for us. And so some families are teachers or doctors. Uh, We happen to be a leadership family. And so my father was a chief. My grandfather was the first chief after the signing of the treaty. Um, There was a chief appointed, Isa Omagis. But during the uh, pandemic, the flu pandemic, the 1918 flu pandemic, he passed away and my grandfather became the chief. And my brother is currently the chief and lots of members of our family have sat on council. 
So to me, leadership is a journey that is bigger than me. It's not just about me as an individual, but it's uh, a sense of duty um, and service to others that has been ingrained in my family and in me. And so I've navigated through different leadership roles based upon people asking me to run for those roles. And so I'm now the regional chief and I started out as a chief in my community when I was 23, I think, 23 years old. So I'm, uh, yeah, it's been a long journey. Well, I've always been creative. I've always had a real strong imagination, I'd say. I remember that being very evident in my childhood. And so I have intermittently pursued different artistic practices in my life. And in terms of leadership, I did run on heart-centered leadership this time around. And that was an evolution for me. I started out <clears throat> very young, having to learn all the different rules associated with politics and leadership and how to conduct myself as a leader. And I've just found that the most important thing is to be authentic. And when you are authentic, you really live from your heart more than your mind because your mind wants to strategize and think of things all the time, whereas your heart really is an intuitive place. And so I've really evolved into that kind of leader. And I think for me, it happened when my mom passed away in 2010, or sorry, 2011. And when she passed on, I was the oldest of the Archibald siblings. I have uh, two other half siblings. And, but in the Archibald clan, I was the oldest girl. So I became the matriarch figure in our family. And I had a really good example of what it was to be a strong matriarch through my mother. And my mom was very, very heart-centered. I mean, she just lived from a place of love and exuded love and love seemed to pour out from every pore in her body. Uh, she was that kind of mom and human being. And so that's the example that I was given as a woman and as a leader. So I've, uh, incorporated that into my work as well. Mm -hmm. Well, it's wonderful. Can we start by you sharing with us a little bit about your cultural upbringing and what you grew up around? Well, I'm from Tequitagamo Nation and we were historically called New Post First Nation or New Post Band based upon where our treaty was signed, which is near the New Post of Hudson's Bay Company. And so we were from that area, which is north of Cochrane. And so I, I wanted to talk a little bit about actually some of the more difficult things that our family has gone through. I just did a post for my brother who is a outreach worker in the downtown east side. Okay. And so he really reminded me of some of the difficulties that we have encountered as a family and as individuals. And so I, both my parents went to residential school 
And so when I talk about, you know, my father being chief, I don't want people to think that <clears throat> this is like a legacy family where, you know, it's glamorized or anything, because it's not, it's actually quite um, difficult because both my parents went to residential school and they had their own issues as they navigated the world, including trying to raise kids while they were on their own healing journey. And so some of those parts of my childhood were difficult. And so I, I think that those experiences really built in me a kind of resilience that can only come from weathering and surviving difficult times. And, and I think that that also has made me a very empathetic leader, a leader who cares about what others are experiencing and uh, care, I, I, have a, I have a deep and abiding love and care for people, knowing that we are all 100% of First Nations people impacted by intergenerational trauma. And that came from uh, Dr. Pam Toulouse, who's uh, one of our Anishinaabe Kwe researchers. And it's true, there isn't anybody that I know that hasn't been impacted by intergenerational trauma in some form. And so that kind of experience has just made me the leader I am today, which is uh, somebody who really cares. Uh, I really care about people and I care about lifting them up and uh, reminding them of who they really are as opposed to what society might say they are. With that being said, um, are you seeing the, you know, with your, your fellow females, your fellow women leaders, uh, as they take on, you know, those roles of leading the community, whether it's, you know, in, in whatever role it might be, whether formally as chief or in other leadership roles, do you see that as part of the healing journey? Or are you seeing that having an active impact on healing with communities? Yeah, definitely. As more women step into formal leadership roles, then it changes the system that we are functioning in, which is a colonial system. And women are always leaders uh, informally. They are the leaders of their families and have many leadership roles outside of politics. And I have personally made it my mission, one of my goals as a leader is to increase the participation of First Nation women in politics in formal leadership roles, because I know that it does make a difference in pushing back against the colonial system that exists. How do you, what are some examples that you can share with our listeners? Like what are some ways which you've done that? Well, when I was a deputy grand chief in the to early 2000s, I actually initiated a women's leadership development and capacity building project that was held in all 49 Anishinaabe Aski Nation communities. And the goal of that project was to increase the capacity of women to walk into leadership roles and certainly increase their, their leadership skills overall. And so that was I think when we started that project, our women in leadership roles, like we counted them in a survey, 
was I think in the 20% something under, under 30. Yeah. And by the time I left the, uh, the, the job uh, and completed my term, they were 30, I think it was almost 39% were oh, either okay. a, counselor, counselor, yeah. a counselor or, or a woman. Um, it was quite high. I wish I had kept the stats somewhere. I might be overestimating, but I know it was in it the was impact. Yeah. Yeah. So it was pretty immediate that project in terms of its impact. So that was one example. And then I've always worked at mentoring and providing that kind of guidance to other women leaders that have asked me to over the years. And as a regional chief, I've also created space for women's chiefs to uh, get together again. There was a caucus of women chiefs that was in the 90s. And so during my term in the last two years, we've had two meetings with the women chiefs caucus. We've revitalized it. And we're actually in the process of trying to get a women chiefs advisory to the minister uh, to the premier and, and cabinet actually so good and we're working with minister jill dunlop on that the other thing that we brought that idea to minister dunlop and she's actually publicly stated that it was because of the conversation that she and i had uh, i think it was last year that she actually established the the um, indigenous women's advisory council to her and so I'm really glad that she's acknowledged that. Um, and that group is made up of all kinds of women across the province, whereas ours will be a little more specific. I've also asked uh, nationally, as well as regionally, that we create more space for women on chiefs councils, that we try and gender balance the uh, chairs of each of those committees that I'm connected to. And so those are just some examples. And then most recently, I'm the portfolio holder for the AFN Women's Council, of which I actually used to be a, an AFN Women's Council member myself when I was a deputy grand chief. So a lot of my work is really centered on increasing the role of women in... It's great to hear. Focusing on that heart-centered leadership that you've led with, um, what what have you seen, like in your experience in this term, and even from before, should be the goal for the modern relationship between First Peoples and and Canadians, maybe more broadly? And what have you found, you know, whether talking to community or Crown representatives or you know politicians and all that stuff? What is the most effective message? Um, you know, if you can really summarize it as one, but to the public or non-Indigenous partners to achieve this goal of what the modern relationship um, might want to look like? Well, the relationship between First Nations and Canada is based upon land, first of all. So the land is still ours. We still have a sacred responsibility to take care of that land. And some of that land has been shared through treaties and agreements with the people who have come from other countries and created their own government, the current colonial government in Canada. And so the relationship is really about 
respecting First Nations rights to that land and the role that that they have and particularly women have a specific role to protect the water and to be stewards of the water and water factors into many of our ceremonies and a lot of those rights are held by women and all those responsibilities are held by women so it's really about stopping the colonial approach to dealing with indigenous people, which is really assimilation and trying to integrate First Nations into the society. It's really, that has to change. Uh, that ongoing attitude has to end. And it has to be about mutual respect and understanding <clears throat> that this sacred responsibility that we have to our land and waters and to the Earth is something that will never leave, no matter how many agreements or MOUs or treaties that you have, that those sacred relationships will, will be our, our, what's the word? They're eternal. They'll go on and on and on. And that's why they talk about in the treaties, as long as the rivers flow and, uh, you know, and the sun shines and all of that. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that that would be an ideal situation. Uh, getting there, I think, is a little more difficult. <clears throat> and, um, but I don't think we should ever lose sight of why we exist and who we really are in this country and where we need to go together with the rest of the society that exists because we're all here together and mm -hmm. we have to figure out how the path forward will look and walk that path together and not drag each other along or try and enforce and force things on others. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's a, an important um, foundation for a relationship. Yeah, uh, that's, I think that's what, yeah, I can hear you. It, it sounds okay, so. Okay, good. Good. Thank you so much for making time for this. I'm really, yeah. uh, I'm really excited. There's such a nice, uh, lineup of speakers that I have so and it'll be launched at the end of September is when I'm going to start season three so I'll keep okay. you informed of everything how's everything been before we get into everything um good I'm on my holidays so that's really nice um and uh so I really needed it after a long you know long long <laughs> stretch there under the pandemic that was pretty yeah. intense yeah. Uh, but I lost your questions. I don't know where they went. Oh, they're in the text, right? Yeah, I texted them to you. Okay. But they're really, again, like this is, this is just meant to be really, you know, natural, conversational, and overall just getting a sense of a little bit of your journey, the wisdom from your role in your leadership and in your own life, and then how uh, the arts have been important for you too. Okay. Kind of like making a case for the arts from like very different and diverse voices, you know? Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. All right. So let's, uh, let's get started. Now, you're not using my picture, right? Just my voice. So there will be some video clips. Oh no, my hair looks really bad. <laughs> it looks okay. But do you want to, did you want to do it? Oh, I'm not really dressed for it. Can we not use video? Can you just use like photos of me or okay. <clears throat> yeah just because I I'm like this is my hoodie and I 
on my holidays, I don't. Yeah, yeah. Okay, no, problem. no problem. All right. So I sent you uh, two different photos of me that you could sort of go between. Yeah, <clears throat> exactly. You'll, you'll send me uh, your, you know, whatever bio you want to use. Maybe there's a bio that hasn't been circulated that you want to update or whatever you like. And then uh, I, I won't have time to do that. <laughs> okay, that's no problem. But you can go to my, uh, my yeah. Facebook page and just grab the bio off of there. Okay. Or off the Chiefs of Ontario website. Okay, that's no problem. Okay. Alrighty. So hello everyone. I am really excited to have our guest for this week's episode of the podcast. Um, this is a really, really wonderful and special episode. I'm excited for to share and listen to more of her story and her journey uh, in leadership. And I've also had the pleasure of working with her in the past. And that is Chief Roseanne Archibald. Hello, Chief. Hi. Hi, welcome. Thank you. So, you know, I had so much respect and feel very kindred towards your story and identity as a leader um, and as a creative, and I'm excited for us to delve a little bit deeper. Mm -hmm. So, you know, your career has been quite unique and eclectic, involving community leadership, going to film school, being an artist, and ultimately leading up to now as a regional chief in a, quite a tumultuous climate too you had such an emphasis on heart-centered leadership. First with a shift to uh, conservative government at the provincial level, there were a lot of organizational changes. And now with elections and pandemic and the social movements of our world, you're sort of nearing the end of your term. And I was wondering just to start off, you know, for our audience of entrepreneurs, leaders and creatives, can you tell us a little bit about how you were able to navigate such a complex leadership trajectory in your career and really what is your basic strength that allowed you to grow uh, through all these places and in this way? Okay, I'll start with the trajectory. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I, you know, politics is and leadership is the family business for us. And so some families are teachers or doctors. Uh, we happen to be a leadership family. And so my father was a chief. My grandfather was the first chief after the signing of the treaty. Um, there was a chief appointed, Isa Omagis. Um, but during the uh, pandemic, the flu pandemic, the 1918 flu pandemic, oh. he passed away and my grandfather became the chief. And my brother is currently the chief and lots of members of our family have sat on council. So, to me, leadership is a journey that is bigger than me. It's not just about me as an individual, but it's uh, a sense of duty um, and service to others that has been ingrained in my family and in me. And so I've navigated through different leadership roles based upon people asking me to run for those roles and so I'm now the regional chief and I started out as a chief in my community when I was 23, I think, 23 years old. So I'm, uh, yeah, it's been a long journey and I can't remember the second part of your question. Oh, it was just, you know, what's been your basic strength that's allowed you to grow in these different ways, creatively and also as a leader? Well, I've 
always been creative. I've always had a real strong imagination, I'd say. I remember that being very evident in my childhood. And so I have intermittently pursued different artistic practices in my life. And in terms of leadership, I did run on heart-centered leadership this time around and that was an evolution for me i started out <clears throat> very young having to learn all the different rules associated with politics and leadership and how to conduct myself as a leader and i've just found that the most important thing is to be authentic and when you are authentic you really live from your heart more than your mind because your mind wants to strategize and think of things all the time, whereas your heart really is an intuitive place. And so I've really evolved into that kind of leader. And I think for me, it happened when my mom passed away in 2010, or sorry, 2011. And when she passed on, I was the oldest of the Archibald siblings. I have uh, two other half siblings. And, but in the Archibald clan, I was the oldest girl. So I became the matriarch figure in our family. And I had a really good example of what it was to be a strong matriarch through my mother. And my mom was very, very heart-centered. I mean, she just lived from a place of love and exuded love and love seemed to pour out from every pore in her body. Uh, she was that kind of mom and human being. And so that's the example that I was given as a woman and as a leader. So I've uh, incorporated that into my work as well. Mm -hmm. Well, it's wonderful to hear that uh, there was that example from your mother and carrying on her legacy. Maybe before we go forward, uh, Roseanne, and I should have done this uh, earlier, but is there a way that you might want to share a bit about um, just who you are in terms of where you come from and anything, uh, you know, what you grew up around, like culturally? Um, sure. You mean just the community, the community we're from and yeah. Well, I'm from Tequitagamo Nation. And we were historically called New Post First Nation or New Post Band based upon where our treaty was signed, which is near the New Post of Hudson's Bay Company. And so we were from that area, which is north of Cochrane. And so I, I wanted to talk a little bit about actually some of the more difficult things that our family has gone through. I just did a post for my brother who is a outreach worker in the downtown east side. Okay. And so he really reminded me of some of the difficulties that we have encountered as a family and as individuals. And so I, both my parents went to residential school. And so when I talk about, you know, my father being chief, I don't want people to think that <clears throat> this is like a legacy family where you know, it's glamorized or anything because it's not, it's actually quite um, difficult because both my parents went to residential school and they had their own issues as they navigated the world, including trying to raise kids while 
they were on their own healing journey. And so some of those parts of my childhood were difficult. And so I, I think that those experiences really built in me a kind of resilience that can only come from weathering and surviving difficult times. And, and I think that that also has made me a very empathetic leader, a leader who cares about what others are experiencing and uh, care. I, I, have a, I have a deep and abiding love and care for people knowing that we are all 100% of First Nations people impacted by intergenerational trauma. And that came from uh, Dr. Pam Toulouse, who's uh, one of our Anishinaabe Kwe researchers. And it's true, there isn't anybody that I know that hasn't been impacted by intergenerational trauma in some form. And so that kind of experience has just made me the leader I am today, which is uh, somebody who really cares. Uh, I really care about people and I care about lifting them up and uh, reminding them of who they really are as opposed to what society might say they are. With that being said, um, are you seeing the, you know, with your, your fellow females, your fellow women leaders, uh, as they take on, you know, those roles of leading the community, whether it's, you know, in, in whatever role it might be, whether formally as chief or in other leadership roles, do you see that as part of the healing journey? Or are you seeing that having an active impact on healing with communities? Yeah, definitely. As more women step into formal leadership roles, then it changes the system that we are functioning in, which is a colonial system. And women are always leaders uh, informally. They are the leaders of their families and have many leadership roles outside of politics. And I have personally made it my mission, one of my goals as a leader is to increase the participation of First Nation women in politics in formal leadership roles, because I know that it does make a difference in pushing back against the colonial system that exists. How do you, what are some examples that you can share with our listeners? Like what are some ways which you've done that? Well, when I was a deputy grand chief in the two, early 2000s, I actually initiated a women's leadership development and capacity building project that was held in all 49 Anishinaabe Aski Nation communities. And the goal of that project was to increase the capacity of women to walk into leadership roles and certainly increase their, their leadership skills overall. And so that was, I think when we started that project, our women in leadership roles, like we counted them in a survey, was I think in the 20% something under, under 30. Yeah. And by the time I left the, uh, the, the job, uh, and completed my term, they were 30, I think it was almost 39% were oh, either a counselor, counselor, yeah. a counselor or, or a woman 
Um, it was quite high. I wish I had kept the stat somewhere. I might be overestimating, but I know it was in the- It was impact, yeah. Yeah, so it was pretty immediate, that project in terms of its impact. So that was one example. And then I've always worked at mentoring and providing that kind of guidance to other women leaders that have asked me to over the years. And as a regional chief, I've also created space for women's chiefs to uh, get together again. There was a caucus of women chiefs that was in the 90s. And so during my term in the last two years, we've had two meetings with the women chiefs caucus. We've revitalized it. And we're actually in the process of trying to get a women chiefs advisory to the minister uh, to the premier and, and cabinet actually so good and we're working with minister jill dunlop on that the other thing that we brought that idea to minister dunlop and she's actually publicly stated that it was because of the conversation that she and i had uh, i think it was last year that she actually established the the um, indigenous women's advisory council to her and so I'm really glad that she's acknowledged that. Um, and that group is made up of all kinds of women across the province, whereas ours will be a little more specific. I've also asked uh, nationally as well as regionally that we create more space for women on chiefs councils, that we try and gender balance the uh, chairs of each of those committees that I'm connected to. And so those are just some examples. And then most recently, I'm the portfolio holder for the AFN Women's Council, of which I actually used to be a, an AFN Women's Council member myself when I was a deputy grand chief. So a lot of my work is really centered on increasing the role of women in formal leadership roles. And, and for those who are listening who might not know AFN, it's uh, Assembly of First Nations, which is sort of a cross-section nationally <clears throat> across Canada of communities. But I'm, I'm really happy to hear that you're really reflecting those perspectives of women and women in leadership roles, um, you know, to different decision makers and creating own decisions. And it, it's great to hear. Focusing on that heart-centered leadership that you've led with, um what what have you seen like in your experience in this term and even from before should be the goal for the modern relationship between first peoples and and canadians maybe more broadly and what have you found you know whether talking to community or crown representatives or you know politicians and all that stuff what is the most effective message um, you know, if you can really summarize it as one, but to the public or non-Indigenous partners to achieve this goal of what the modern relationship um, might want to look like? Well, the relationship between First Nations and Canada is based upon land, first of all. So the land is still ours. We still have a sacred responsibility to take care of that land. And some of that land has been shared through treaties and agreements with the people who have come from other countries and created their own government, the current colonial government in Canada. 
And so the relationship is really about respecting First Nations rights to that land and the role that, that they have. And particularly women have a specific role to protect the water and to be stewards of the water and water factors into many of our ceremonies. And a lot of those rights are held by women and all those responsibilities are held by women. So it's really about stopping the colonial approach to dealing with indigenous people, which is really assimilation and trying to integrate First Nations into the society. It's really, that has to change. Uh, that ongoing attitude has to end. And it has to be about mutual respect and understanding <clears throat> that this sacred responsibility that we have to our land and waters and to the earth is something that will never leave, no matter how many agreements or MOUs or treaties that you have that those sacred relationships will will be our, our what's the word they're eternal they'll go on and on and on and that's why they talk about in the treaties as long as the rivers flow and uh you know and the sun shines and all of that mm -hmm. so I, I think that that would be an ideal situation uh getting there i think is a little more difficult <clears throat> and um but I don't think we should ever lose sight of why we exist and who we really are in this country and where we need to go together with the rest of the society that exists because we're all here together and mm -hmm. we have to figure out how the path forward will look and walk that path together and not drag each other along or try and enforce and force things on others. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's a, an important um, foundation for a relationship. Yeah, uh, that's. I think that's wonderful to hear, and it really does start with that mindset, or and what I guess we're expecting of each other, especially with Canadians and how Canadians may talk about the relationship. Um, like you said earlier, expecting there to be this integration and just take on our ways and all that stuff, but really respecting the distinctiveness is the first step to be heard. Um, is there, has there been a moment where you've been sort of impressed or surprised, like in your journey, like a little, a, a small win in this sort of long term relationship and a long term process, uh, whether it's been within communities or, um, yeah, in your own, in your own work and conversations at a political level, just maybe like one impressive moment that, you know, really sticks with you. Well, there are a lot of impressive moments, but I, I just want to stay with where we are in history right now, which is the pandemic. Mm. And this pandemic has really created a sense of empathy that exists for everybody. Mm -hmm. So even though COVID-19 disproportionately affects uh, racialized people uh, BIPOC, which is Black Indigenous people of color, anybody can get it. And we all have to follow the measures uh, in order to, to stay healthy and safe. And that means that we have to think about each other. And so this pandemic has certainly shifted some of the perspective 
um, on race relations in Canada. And I really think about the, that seminal moment around George Floyd and all of the uprisings that happened in support of BIPOC, not only in the US, but in Canada. Mm -hmm. And so we really have to figure out how to maintain that momentum that yes. people realize the great injustices that are happening to First Nations people and BIPOC and and really do something about it. So I think this pandemic has illuminated that and brought it to the center in a way that it hasn't been in many, many years and certainly has created a more vocal allyship mm -hmm. with uh, many of our allies. And I think that's a really important part of the journey forward is, is building these allies, allyships that we need in order to create a more just society and a healthier society and a place that uh, we really can all be proud of. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's be hopeful <laughs> that the outcomes of what's been happening this year does bring us forward and uh, closer together, understanding uh, each other more and putting that effort in. Um, Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your creative side and, and how has your journey as a leader shaped your relationship to the arts, if at all? And, and with that too, what, what was kind of the view of the arts from community perspectives during, you know, in your, in your time and in your experiences? Well, I'll start with myself Yeah, as an artist. I do consider myself an artist. Uh, an artist is defined as one who makes art. <laughs> so, that's what I do. Um, and I, you know, the, the quality of that art or whether that art is deemed to be uh, of uh, a certain nature, I'll leave that up to other people to decide. But I am an artist and I've always been, you know, from uh, an early age just very creative and imaginative <laughs> imaginative um but yeah i uh i actually i'd say that you know i've i've dabbled in many for art forms because i don't think that you can be just one thing or maybe you can be but i can't be just one thing i i've studied film and i've made short films and music videos and I've also started a, a mixed media series in 2012 uh, on, it's called Headdress Appropriation by the Appropriated. Also have a heart series that I call. So it's very interesting that that has come to the forefront in my career as a, a leader. And I also sing, um, play guitar, piano, write songs. And uh, I think those are the main things that I do. Wow, I love it. Yeah, and uh, oh, and I actually have a degree in theater arts, so I've actually um, acted, and uh, and I'm a clown. <laughs> <laughs> Sense of humor. <laughs> no, I mean like I'm a real clown. Oh, are you really? <laughs> I didn't not know a, that. Not a kitty clown. Okay. Um, but uh, I actually was trained by. Uh, John Turner of Mump and Smoot, uh, the terror clowns, you might have heard of them. 
And uh, so I'm, I'm a baby clown. I still have uh, many more years of clowning to become a bigger clown, I guess. <laughs> oh my gosh. But I've actually studied, and it's based upon indigenous sacred clowning, his technique, as well as uh, a technique by uh, Richard Pachenko, uh, which is, um, you know, it's not about clown funny. It's a, it is kind of funny, but it's more like demented clown, I guess, um, the, the true nature of clown and, and uh, how clowns are uh, the contraries and all of that. So it's more artsy clown, I guess. <laughs> contrarian. You're contrarian, Roseanne. <laughs> yeah. And so I, you know, the, the biggest thing that connects my two works are, I would say, the headdress series that I created. And so with the headdress series, it's, I put uh, headdresses on iconic figures. So I did a headdress on Barack Obama and I put two Hopi headdresses on him. And the title of the painting is Hopi based upon his uh, Hope poster when he ran uh, the first time. Yeah. Is it still in your office, by the way? I love it. Yeah, yeah, it's still okay, there. Okay, good. And I also did Nelson Mandela, the Queen of England. And Che Guevara actually was my first headdress. And so I saw that series as really linking the political of part of my life with the artistic part of my life and trying to create art that has a, a political statement embedded in it, but is also what I consider to be working within the, um, I don't want to say confines of art, but art is about beauty. And so the paintings can't just be these, you know, sloppy renderings. They're, they're very um, fine art. I, the finest art I can do anyway. <laughs> no, I love it. I mean, what I've seen of them, I don't know if you, ha you have shared the rest of the pieces or there's a way you would share them. Well, you know, when I send you photos of myself, I yeah. send you, I'll send you a, a photo of the Hopi one that you can. Yes. That would be great. Have you seen, um, is there anything that you notice about the role of the arts in community or communities? Yeah, I, you know, there are, this part of us, art really comes from, for me, it's a real spiritual connection. And it's, um, it can be intellectual, but it is really grounded in the heart and in the body and in the spirit. And so, I find that First Nations people who are artists ground their work in those same places. And, and so I do see that we have many, many talented people in First Nations across Ontario and across Canada, really, who have risen to very high levels. Someone like Norval Morisot, who has been deemed the father of uh, woodland art, for example, and, you know, our artists have something that they are trying to convey through their art, uh, a certain message along with their whatever aesthetic they're choosing. And so to me, the artist is a truth teller and plays an important role in society of telling the truth and illuminating and shining a light on things that maybe we would like to not have to look at. And so artists are an extraordinarily important part of our evolution 
as First Nations people, but also our evolution as human beings. And so anytime that I get to lift up an artist and show their work on some of my social media, I do that. And I even think about artists as being connected to other kinds of careers. For example, Hiawatha, uh, I can't remember her last name. <laughs> she has a um, an amazing food truck and she opened a restaurant and her food is very creative, is very artistic, is very soulful. And so art really is embedded in almost everything in our lives. And it doesn't, it doesn't just uh, include drawing and painting and what we think of as the typical kinds of art practices. It's really across the board. And so it's evident that this exists in our communities and has to be lifted up and continually lifted up. Yeah, being artful about the things that we do and, and engage in as much as actually creating and putting that care into our practice as human beings and the things that we invest in. Um, who's someone that really believed in you early on and <clears throat> mentors now? Um, artistically, you mean? Uh, that could be generally, like it, it could be artistically or um, and or in your, other aspects of your life. Just someone that really believed in your capabilities early on. Well, I'm going to start with politics. And uh, a friend of mine, he's passed away now. His name was Doug Sinaway, and he was the chief of White Sand First Nation. And he was definitely somebody who recognized the leadership abilities that I had and certainly fostered and encouraged that in me. But I've had a lot of male mentors, which is why I started to realize that I needed to be a mentor myself and also create capacity in women and somehow figure out how to increase their leadership skills. Because a lot of my mentors were chiefs that I worked with and for. Uh, for example, Chief Ryan Michano, uh, he gave me my first job as a band manager and uh, was a really great boss and an amazing chief. Also uh, um, believed in me greatly. Uh, there's a lot of different people I can think of in politics. My dad and my mom, obviously, number one. But these other chiefs like uh, Frank Beardy. Um, I really, even today, uh, I... There's a chief I talk to regularly, uh, Chief Donnie Morris of Kitchen Kitchen uh, which is Big Trout Lake. And um, so, yeah, I've had a lot of support. Um, and then I saw women as well um, that did encourage me and were around as well. Um, for example, my cousin Margaret Navieu was a chief in metogamy. Uh, Doreen Kadiji was a chief in Chaplow. She was the first woman chief to, to sit beside me in a meeting and strike up a conversation many years ago. Um, so I did see other women leaders, uh, but I, did, I was the first of all of these things. Like I was the first uh, deputy grand chief um, that was a woman. I was the first grand chief of Mishkego Council that was a woman. And of course now I'm the first regional chief. So. I suppose I've had to really think about me mentoring others versus, you know, looking for uh, women that were on the road ahead of me because I was the first. Um, but in terms of art, 
you know, in theater, Valerie Senek was my main professor and she was really uh, instrumental in helping me understand the art of theater. Um, Jim Guido, who's a director out West now at uh, I think University of Alberta was instrumental in my art career. And in terms of the art that I do, uh, mixed media and painting, it was really my mom. She was always sketching and uh, doing, you know, some of the Cree designs for um, different pieces that she was working on. And so I think those are the top people that I could say really helped me and shaped me as an artist. And um, I have friends too who have had huge influence on me, like Loretta Todd, who is a filmmaker on the West Coast. Uh, her big film, Monkey Beach, is coming out soon. And um, I'm trying to think of other people, but I think those are the top people that come to mind. Yeah. No, it sounds like you have such a wide network of people who have really helped you along the way. And that's, that's what we always have to attribute our greatness to as well. When people do encourage us and, and believe in us, it has such a different, makes such a difference. Um, how are you caring for yourself these days? Very humble leader, Roseanne, I have to say, even just throughout this whole thing, very humble and, um, you can hear the gratitude through your journey and it's it's such a pleasure to hear more about your views and all the work that you're doing to support women especially your fellow women i think that's that's a really um important thing especially in these changing times the world is, has been ready it's been a long time coming so uh no that's great actually yeah, i wanted to leave you with one thought because i think carolyn bennett stole this from me because she talks about it too but well, you know, this yeah. is a thing i had when I was, uh, I, I started saying this saying, I would say about 2006. And by then I was going into my second term as a deputy grand chief, not concurrent, but I had been a deputy grand chief in the nineties and had come back for a second term. And what I had realized is that as a woman leader, I've been fortunate enough to walk into spaces as a leader so the doors have been open for me and I, I noticed that as I went through my career the first time the doors opened and I went in then they closed behind me that's when I was a chief the first time mm -hmm. and uh, so then when I was a deputy grand chief again a brand new role I did feel like the doors closed behind me again and so I by the time I became the grand chief of Mishkegawak and then the grand chief again, I realized I had to figure out how to keep the doors open. Mm. And uh, the only way you can really keep the doors open is to take the doors off the hinges. And so to me, that's been, that's my life work is to not only walk into what we deem the halls of power, but to turn around, take the doors off the hinges, blow them to smithereens so that, <laughs> so that other women can walk in and be in those spaces with me and after me. So that's my life work. That's so wonderful. Well, it's such an honor to have you in my life, Roseanne. And uh, this has been wonderful hearing more about your journey. And I'm excited to see how everything closes out and on to the new chapter. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Um, so I'll send.
Oh, and wherever you're listening, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other platform, please don't forget to subscribe and even leave a little review if you like and share. Thanks so much. Thank you.